so that's why we spend a lot of time building relationships with the organizations so that when we have to hit the ground running and only have two weeks to collect information from the young people, it's already in place. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the Past Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. So on today's episode of Learning Unboxed, we are headed back out west to Boulder, Colorado. We're going to talk about community initiatives that are a mechanism for allowing kids and youth in particular to play a meaningful role in what happens in their cities and their communities. And joining us today uh, for that conversation is Mira Mintzer, and we are excited to have you. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Annalise. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Absolutely. So as we sort of get started to sort of set the stage for our listeners, Yamara is the co-founder and executive director of Growing Up Boulder, which is Boulder, Colorado's youth and child-friendly city initiative, as we indicated, but also sort of in the wheelhouse of the work that you have done. Um, she presents and writes internationally on how to engage young people in community and planning on child-friendly cities, including her TED Talk, How Kids Can Help Design Cities which has been viewed more than 2.3 million times. So congratulations for that, because that alone is quite the accomplishment. Thank you. It's really been a, a wonderful surprise to see it take off like that. And I get notes from kids and adults around the world now, thanks to that. And what a wonderful feeling that is, right? It's, it's a validation of the work that you're doing and how desperately it's needed. It's amazing. And, and the diversity of people who are interested in this or for whom it resonates um, brings a smile to my face. I've had emails from um, a young woman who is 14 in Utah saying, I never knew there was a word for what I wanted to do. And I feel like I'm not so alone in the world anymore. And I've also had someone who's a professor in Sri Lanka say, how can we integrate this into our urban mm -hmm. planning school here in Sri Lanka? So it's very meaningful. Awesome. Awesome. So for our guests who aren't familiar um, with this program, let's just dig right in. So explain to all of us, what is Growing Up Boulder first and foremost, and why was it necessary? Why is it needed? Right. So... Um, I'm going to take a little step back and my personal stories interwoven into what this is all about. So I have, uh, my career has been running programs for underserved children and families in New York and California. And when I moved to Colorado, I personally had a one-year-old child at the time and I was looking for work. I was trying to figure out what to do with my career. And through my networking, I met a professor, Willem von Vliet, who said, look, we tried to do this thing called a child-friendly city initiative in Denver, Colorado. And I'd never heard of child-friendly mm -hmm. city initiatives as many listeners. Right, probably. yeah. What, what is that? Yeah, it's a new term, right. <laughs> well, so what it is, I always start by defining it because I assume people haven't heard of it in our country in particular. There's a treaty called the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. And it says that anyone under the age of 18 has basic 
protected rights, including the right to a good education, mm-hmm. health care, the right to green spaces and to freely move about and convene with your friends and the right to a voice in decisions which affect you. And so there are locales throughout the entire world that take these principles and operationalize them. They, they, need- they, they, they've decided it's critically important. And so it's not just a thing that said, we're actually going to do something with it. Exactly. They make it real, right? Right. That treaty is only as good as how it's applied. And so that's what the Child-Friendly City Initiative is. But when Professor Von Vliet and his team had started this in Denver, there was no framework to do this in our country, in the United States, because we're the only country in the world that has not ratified the treaty. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so they looked at all the academic research and practical research, and they said, well, let's test it out. And so they did that for a few years. After a few years, it kind of petered away. And that's when I came in and I said, hey, I'd love to do this for my city of Boulder, Colorado. Mm -hmm. Can I do that? And he said, sure, we have no money. Go volunteer your time. (laughs) (laughs) Which is often the way great things get started out in the world, right? (laughs) It really is. And, you know, it was this passion along with the passion of my colleagues. And over 12 years, we have raise some money, not working uh, as a full volunteer anymore. We um, really have refined how this works for us. And then actually two years ago, UNICEF USA said, hey, this is a pretty cool thing, Mm -hmm. the child-friendly cities idea. Let's try implementing that in the United States. And so now it's sort of the work we've been doing is coming together with the work from a more formal agency and, and we're really taking it to the next level. That is absolutely amazing. And again, there's that commonality in that volunteer service around the way initiatives get started. But I am really, really curious, and we'll get into the nuts and bolts of the, the actual work of the program in a second, but the, the connecting piece with UNICEF is curious to me in the sense that, you know, as you indicated, that becomes sort of a, a driver or a vehicle, if you will, to make this, this, this body of work more accessible um, and to be able to integrate it in a number of other places around the United States. That's obviously the hope. So do you have a sense of how, how that piece of the initiative or the work is going? Um, and you know, before we get into sort of the nuts and bolts of what's happening in Boulder, how, how is that spread starting yeah. to take root? A great question. So I've been consulting with UNICEF USA on this from the beginning Mm -hmm. um, because we had done the work and we were connected with it. You know, it's an evolution. It's really quite new for them to be engaged in a domestic program this mm-hmm, way where mm-hmm. they're they're getting into sort of American um, cities. I mean, they've done crisis response, but it but not as much the sort of systemic way of of working. It really is a co-creation process they're doing. And so, What's interesting for us is that we have not been recognized yet as an official child-friendly city initiative under UNICEF USA. And many of the other communities, there may be a few other communities that were dabbling in child-friendly cities on their own before UNICEF came into it. For all of us, it's been a little tricky because we've had to figure out, well, how do we meet what we're currently doing and our responsibilities to our stakeholders with this kind of more broad work that UNICEF USA is doing, we're hoping to become a 
pilot city or candidate city over the next year so that we meld those two together. But I think it's almost easier for cities starting from scratch, like Mm -hmm. Houston or Minneapolis, because they have kind of a blank template that they can start with, whereas we are trying to fit two puzzle pieces together. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. All right, so help our listeners then understand. So what actually happens within the Growing Up Boulder program? So what what is the the actual steps or the the action, the applied component uh, of this work? Yeah, this is where it comes alive. Yeah. So what happens is um, on a yearly basis, we will meet with our city and say, what are the top issues that are coming up? What are the really big interesting issues that we want to get young people's voice in. And and our colleagues go to the different public-facing departments and say, where would you like young people's voice? Now, as you can imagine, when we first started this, it was kind of like, well, why why would we want young people's voices? Why would we care about what they think, right? I hear that all the time. Absolutely. Why why would it matter? Because we have a 12-year track record now, there are more requests than we can accommodate Mm -hmm. because the different departments can see the benefits of it. And I can talk a little more about what those benefits are. But so then we find out, okay, these are say the top three issues. So this past year, for example, Mm -hmm. we worked on the Parks and Recreation Master Plan. What is the vision for our parks and recreation spaces and activities over the next five years? Reimagining policing. Mm -hmm. So what what could that look like in our city? And then some smaller projects as well of, um, for instance, a specific site where we're looking to connect public school classrooms with a science discovery space on our open space city land. Mm -hmm. So in Boulder, open space and mountain parks is a department that deals with all of the sort of hiking trails and natural spaces in our community. And so really looking at how can young people and diverse young people connect with those spaces and become eco stewards for them. Once we have those top ideas chosen, we go out and find ideal partners to work with. And what we're looking for in our partners is, first of all, diversity and equity. Where do we hear from the most underrepresented kids, the kids least likely to have a voice in their decisions? We start with them. Right, uh, right. And we often extend it beyond that, but we start with kids, you know, who may not be English language speakers or, the, or kids who have disabilities. We then find who's a partner who's willing to put in a little extra work on their end because it does take a little extra work from a classroom teacher or from an after-school program, but the rewards are so worth it that they're willing to come back and ask Mm -hmm. for it again and again. And then we will spend anywhere between one session to an entire year really delving into a topic. And um, by the end, the kids are coming up with their own recommendations and sharing them face-to-face or Zoom-to-Zoom. Right, yeah, yeah. With decision makers in the community. So just just for my own sort of clarity, I guess, if you will, so the kids who are participating in any of these initiatives, so whether that be, for example, the you mentioned your your your, your local park system or um, law enforcement in the community sort of sort of components. Well, what happens at the conclusion of that year? I guess, I guess what the heart of what I'm trying to get at is, so the students participate in lending their voice, but do they actually get to participate in sort of the actions that come after the voice has been gathered? Right. So often these are more, hmm, the, these are not always as specific as like, we're going to, we want a community garden and we're going to plant it. And right, right. 
they're often much sort of loftier issues, which could, you know, feel like it would be disconnected for young people. So that's where there are a few key parts to make it mm-hmm. impactful. The first is that we start by the, from the beginning, telling the young people what's going to happen with their voice, how it's going to be used, and, and what how the process is going to continue. I'll give you a very concrete example. We worked with uh, 225 young people from preschool all the way through high school on something called the Civic Area, which is a 26-acre sort of downtown public space park. And it was very, it was kind of large-scale visioning of like, what is what should this area be like? We let the kids know this is a long process from the mm-hmm. beginning to actually implementing it. But we will let you know along the way, if you're interested, what happens with it. And so we made sure to always be posting on our social media and our website for the um, launch of the space, which opened six years after the first group of kids were involved. Wow, wow. We, we tried to track down every one of those kids. It was not easy. We, yeah. we succeeded in getting um, maybe 60 of them to come back, but it was really hard to, to get all of them. But we do our best. And um, we also, you know, produce a big report at the end that the city can leave with and can refer back to over and over again. And we've heard it's actually quite influential in the city Mm. to have this, to be able to balance out some of the user data and reports from other user groups as well. Right. Because oftentimes, as I'm sure that you know, and many of our listeners, I'm sure who've experienced, you know, a variety of of community-based initiatives, mostly that work is based on the voice of surveys or conversations with adults. It's pretty rare that students get to be heavily involved. And I would think that being able to have that data set, and I love the way you put it, to sort of balance out the research and the information that's coming across whatever the initiative happens to be. So I, I so appreciate that as a team of anthropologists. And researchers, we understand the need for a, you know a very diverse um, set of informations from a decision-making standpoint. I'm super, super curious because there's so much of this activity going on in the world right now and the conversations about law enforcement and communities. So I'm just fascinating to sort of hear, sort of what do you hear from these young voices that may be nuggets that are not showing up in our traditional media outlets or even in our social media, uh, because there's a lot of stuff that gets dumped in there. But I'm curious actually about some of the, the insights that you're, you're getting that maybe are never, or at least not at the moment, you know, in sort of the popular understanding of the way young people are thinking about this issue. Because I would assume that as this gets started, like many of your other initiatives, you've learned some pretty amazing and surprising and wonderful and maybe not so wonderful things with every single one of these initiatives along the way. And I think that it's important that we share and understand all those sides of what comes from the conversations you have. Absolutely. And since you asked about the sort of reimagining policing issue, Mm -hmm. let me jump into that one. Yeah. First, I want to say how we approached the subject. My, My colleague and I became very aware that as two white women we might not be the people who would be making our students of color feel most comfortable Mm -hmm. and brave if we were facilitating the conversation. And so we brought in an amazing colleague named Maya Soldancy, who's a therapist, but her work is also very culturally based. She's Latinx and her work really builds upon the strengths of culture. And so we brought her in and we said, Let's look at how we can co-design these and and you'll deliver the sessions with our students of color, with our students who have been impacted by the criminal justice system, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We have um, students we work with who are formerly unhoused, 
uh, young people. And let's create a brave space where their mental mm -hmm. health needs are being addressed as we ask them to share their feedback. Because the last thing we wanted to do was recreate trauma for right. them as they discussed it. And, and if there was trauma being raised, to not have a, a container to hold that in and to help them process it and work through it. So um, she employs something called healing-based engagement, mm -hmm. which is... Um, it's sort of the next step of trauma-informed care. It's really using healing methodologies like breathing techniques mm -hmm. and body scans and naming systemic oppression when young people are feeling these things. So because of that, we just had amazing conversations with the young people where they've shared things like the following. I don't feel safe in any of my public spaces. You know what feels safe to me? My community when mm -hmm. I'm with my family and my community. But in a public space, I'm seen as a black or brown body and I'm always afraid of how I'm going to be misperceived and targeted. Mm -hmm. This was another really interesting one. We worked with the parents of kids with disabilities and often people with disabilities or who are neuroatypical, mm -hmm. neurodiverse, their behavior can be seen by law enforcement as being problematic or dangerous, mm -hmm. when in fact, these are just, it's just different right. ways of interacting mm -hmm. with the world. Mm -hmm. And so the parents talked a lot about how can we create a relationship with police systems so they understand our kids and don't pull the trigger quickly because they don't right. understand who they are. Right, right. All these things might not have come out if we didn't take the time to really listen and ask careful questions and support our community in, in sharing all of this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I cannot um, stress for, for folks who are listening to this, how important the fact that you recognize early on in this conversation that you needed to bring in somebody that would make those that you were asking questions of be comfortable. Um, I, I so appreciate that, you know, again, um, as an anthropologist, but also as, as you pointed out, as a white female, there are only so many questions that you can ask and really get at the root of what it is that you, you really want to know um, so that we can make the world better if we can't get those who are having the conversation with to be comfortable enough uh, to be able to feel like they can be honest and open in those spaces. So, Oh, that's absolutely fabulous. I am curious then, as you've had these conversations, and, and so I, I guess let me step back, my apologies. So how far into the process is this particular project and how long do you anticipate this project is going to last until you get to that sort of data set and that report that goes goes back out and is informing what's going on with law enforcement in Boulder? Let's, let's start with that piece to sure. understand the timeline. Yes, good question. So um, the timeline is a, it's a two-year timeline. Okay. And of course, with COVID, it keeps shifting things. Mm -hmm. It delayed some of the vision. We started this work with young people in the spring of 2021. We collected the information. We spent months, and you'll appreciate this as an anthropologist, analyzing the data mm -hmm. because it was qualitative and it really took huge amounts of time. Yeah. And we we didn't want to get it wrong. It was so right. heavy and important. Um, we created a report that went out in August. So that was window one of engagement. Right now, we're in the period window two of engagement just finished up where the city took all these open-ended questions mm -hmm. and then looked at, well, we heard these values and these focus areas based on what we heard from the community. We gave that back out to the same kids and said, here's what the city heard. Do you agree, strongly agree or strongly disagree with these statements? And then also a little open-ended space for mm -hmm. tell us more about that. Mm 
So we're in the process of analyzing um, that second round of data, Mm -hmm. what we've heard from the different groups. Then a third window is going to open probably in January, where we look at what are specific strategies that can Mm -hmm. be used to address these values and focus areas. Now, what's really interesting about working with kids and challenging is they're growing up all the time. Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. the groups that we've worked with keep having turnover, as would be expected when a new school year starts. And also they have their own priorities. Mm -hmm. So that's why we spend a lot of time building relationships with the organizations so that when we have to hit the ground running and only have two weeks to collect information from the young people, it's already in place. And and it might be a different set of young people. So what we're going to do is make sure that we inform them about here's what your peers had said before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Here's where it's gone with it. Let's talk about how this is feeling for you. Yeah, absolutely. And what's the age range of the participants? Is this just high school kids? Is this high school, middle school? Are we getting into pre-K? You know, what's, what's the range we're talking about here? So we tried all age ranges. Mm -hmm. We went pre-K all the way through high school and our preschool people who um, are, it's a private preschool that's largely white and affluent. I love it. They, they sat and really thought about it and they said, you know what? We are not the right people to be sharing our opinions here. We have opinions, but because we are not most impacted, we don't think we should be the top people you're listening to. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. Self-awareness. We got to love that, right? Self-advocacy. So they sort of took themselves out of the running, although we we included a paragraph about their thinking because it was Mm -hmm. so deep and important. Then we've worked with elementary school. We've worked with a class of fourth graders um, all the way up through young adults who Mm -hmm. are up to age 24. And you would be amazed. The fourth graders who are, say, nine and 10 years old, they already understood Mm -hmm. systemic racism. Um, they were, <laughs> one little girl said, like, why are black and brown people being treated differently from white people? Who made that up? That's not right. Uh-huh. They're very aware of this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think we often discount the ability of our really young children to understand all of this, but they're there. We just need, mm-hmm. we need to be talking in an age appropriate way with them about it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm also then curious if we do, if you don't mind, if we could dig into a little bit. I also was really intrigued by the the, the broader parks uh, conversation that you had, and 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 I have a very selfish reason for being intrigued and interested in this. We are based in Columbus, Ohio, which is an urban location, and we do a tremendous amount of work with a lot of kids who are not comfortable, maybe that's the best way to put it, that are not comfortable out in the, 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 the wilderness component or green spaces in the environment, like so many cities. And we've got fabulous, fabulous metro parks here. But getting access to them during a regular sort of occurrence can sometimes be difficult, right? If you don't have a, if your family doesn't have a car or, or your parents are working two or three jobs just to, to make ends meet, you know, there, it may be difficult to be able to actually get out to one of the metro parks. And when you're there, it might be, um, you're not sure what to do, you know, what, what, what happens. And so we've spent a lot of time doing a lot of work with urban kids in green spaces and we, and, and they love it. We see the value and families love it. There's all those components, but I'm curious about sort of what, at same 
sorts of questions. What is that conversation? What did you learn from that conversation about the needs for the community? And Boulder is definitely, you know, um, full disclosure, very different place than Columbus, Ohio is. But, you know, you still have this great, amazing opportunity as it relates to green spaces and the way we think about um, students sort of being immersed in and become stewards of that for the future. The other piece of it, I think that's also super intriguing in part of this conversation is the fact that um, we don't test in most places in the United States, just for, for our international listeners, sciences, right? Not in elementary school in particular. And so we have seen a very um, devaluing in many, in many ways, in many respects, um, science, environmental science, nature um, in those earlier grades because it's not tested, which is super unfortunate because of course, you know, kids love and get so much out of, out of that. So how do you rationalize and work with all of those different components? What has that conversation in your community been about? Yeah, so it's a it's a huge question, and I'm going to try and address yeah. different parts of it. And and if there's more you want on a specific part, let me know because I love this topic, and um, there, there's just a lot of richness to it. The first is location of parks, right? What we should be doing is in every urban planning redevelopment or space that we create, there should be a walkable park within ten minutes, and I would even say five minutes, and. And maybe park isn't always the right word, right? right. Their kids have told us they want green space right where they mm-hmm. live because often they're not given permission for a variety of reasons to walk that five or 10 minutes right. Right. Um, because of safety concerns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some are real, some are brought about because of news media. But what you can do is you can create spaces that have fruit trees, climbing trees, piles of leaves to play in different smells you can enjoy from different plants. All of that could be created right where the people are living. Um, And so those locations are really key. And thinking about also how kids can get to those spaces is really important. Is there a safe walking or biking corridor for them to get there? We can't have them having to go on a street without sidewalks with lots of cars on it. It's just not conducive to them being able to get outside and play And I would say the older they are, the more freely they should be able to do that without adult supervision. Because one exercise we often do with um, adults is we will have them close their eyes and think back to their favorite childhood outdoor experience. And and what we'll find most of the time is there were no adults there. Mm -hmm. It was Mm -hmm. a place where they could be kids on Mm -hmm. their own, free play. And so I think that's also important to think about. When it comes to um, the uses of the spaces, this Mm -hmm. is where it's so great to actually be working with the kids and asking them. So for example, middle school kids who are, and high school kids who are often so neglected in these conversations, Mm -hmm. we we think more about early childhood and elementary school, but then suddenly it's like, they don't want to play anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a high school kid. She still wants to play. Oh yeah. and, And if you look at many parks, and I remember this from when I was a teen, we would go and hang out on the swings and monkey bars at night because like, there was nowhere else to go. And we wanted that adrenaline rush. And so how, and that's what our kids are telling us, like, give us an adrenaline rush, give us a challenge mm-hmm. and then let us hang out. Like we want to be social right. and we want to see and be seen only a little bit, but, but we want to be watching what's going on. So if you create those spaces where the kids are invited to hang out um, and when they're invited to climb really high, you know, ropes or have a zip line, 
they will come to that. They are seeking mm-hmm. that sort of adrenaline mm-hmm. and it's a safe way to do it versus right. racing a car, you know, at 60 right. miles an hour. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The other thing is when it talks about, when you were talking about nature and outdoor learning and science, well, we found that one of the silver linings of COVID is it forced people to use the outdoors. More. Right. Right. And it was actually one of the only ways we were able to convene with young people. And so we really talked about, well, how can the schools connect to the land, to the outdoors, mm-hmm. whether it's their own school property mm-hmm. or whether it's a space across the street and use that as a learning laboratory. And one of the things that I think was really informative for everyone was when we asked the kids how they felt, how, how do you feel? Tell us about your body sensations right now out here in nature. They said, I feel relaxed. Mm-hmm. I feel happy. Mm-hmm. I feel like part of a team. I think that was really telling. And so mm-hmm. I'm hoping we build upon that. And I know there have been huge movements that I've been a part of too with um, Green School Yards to really yep. do more of this. And in, in very urban settings as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's needed broadly. This is, this is not uh, you know, a rural or an urban or even suburban issue. It, this is one of those things that, that we have certainly seen um, in all the different places where we've gone and done work in communities that um, we need more of this. So I'm super excited um, that you've been having actively having the conversation in community and, and producing results tied to that. So I am am always curious as it relates to thinking about the way our listeners are sort of interpreting the conversation that we've been having, you know, as as they think about, hey, I just heard this great conversation, but how do I take what I heard and incorporate it into my own practice as an individual classroom teacher or as a community policymaker or something in between? You know, what, what do I do with this if this is not an active process? that's happening in my own community? How do I get started by grabbing some of this wonderful stuff that I just heard and, and making it part of my own reality in my community? Absolutely. Um, and eventually we are working on trying to create an institute for child-friendly cities so we can support others who want to do this work. It's fabulous. Um, but we're so busy with our, <laughs> our local pieces that that's probably going to be maybe a year or so out. In the meantime, Um, I would say to start small, Mm -hmm. don't let it, it's so easy to get overwhelmed by all of this. And, and even when I conceptualized this at the beginning, I almost didn't know where to start, but I would say, pick something that you as an educator or as a city planner, right? Sometimes someone listening might be actually an elected official Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or a staff member at a city and start small. And I think there's sort of a few key players that need to come together. One is someone from municipal government um, who's a champion and and finds this to be an interesting idea of hearing from young people. The second is someone who works with kids, so an Mm -hmm. educator or an after-school person, to have them come together and start brainstorming what is a project that we could make a difference on where we really would love to hear from young people. And then what you can do is you can follow our model. This is up on our website. We have all of our reports up on our website. So hopefully you can find Mm -hmm. this. If you can't, feel free to contact us at the website address listed there, the contact address. We start by capturing the kids' lived experience. Mm -hmm. So not asking them to be anything other than experts on who they currently are. Mm -hmm. And that can be done as simply as having them create a drawing of the places they go and how they get there. If you're studying transportation, right. them telling you that is really useful feedback. 
we then have the kids stretch their thinking and do some research and, and maybe interview some experts. So well, what have other communities done that's really cool? If you're building um, a team-friendly park, well, let's see what exists around the world. And the kids get into this because it's relevant to them. This is relevant, authentic, engaged learning. Then the kids synthesize their ideas with you know, what they had known originally from themselves and then what they've learned and they shared out. So you can do that within any school curriculum. We've done it in math classes mm-hmm. and English classes, social studies, um, any of them work and just try it and then make sure that the kids see what happens with their results so you can come back and do it again. Absolutely. And it will be amazing um, because kids love to participate in what's going on in their own world. Uh, they just don't often um, get asked. So um, that is absolutely spectacular. I am so happy that you made time to join us today and to have the conversation. The work that you're doing and your organization um, is doing is absolutely spectacular. And I would hope, you know, a model that others want to to grab hold of and incorporate in a variety of different ways. Um, So uh, Samara, thank you so much uh, for being part of our conversation today, uh, making time to join us, to have this conversation about growing up bold. Well, thank you, Annalise. It was my pleasure to be a part of it. And I've been equally inspired by listening to the other podcasts you've done. So I think we can all keep learning from each other. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin. And join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.